Brought to you by RunToGold.com, the premier source for monetary science applied to geopolitical, international, and economic financial news and events. Welcome back. This is episode 45 of the RunToGold.com podcast, and this is an interview from Contrary Investors Cafe about inflation versus deflation. Jim Willie and Friends is a production of Radio CICN and is produced for informational and educational purposes only. Please remember that all content is solely and completely the viewpoint of Jim Willie and guest commentators and does not necessarily reflect those of the staff, advertisers, affiliates, or other guests of Radio CICN or ContraInvestorsCafe.com. everyone and welcome back to Jim Willie and Friends. This week we're with our friend Trace Meyer. How are you doing, Trace? I'm wonderful. How are you, Michelle? I'm doing well. I'm really glad to have you back today. Um, one of the things that I've been wanting to talk to you about is the ongoing debate between inflation and deflation. And I know you wrote an article recently about that. So I was hoping we could delve into it and see if we can solve some of the confusion. Oh, sure thing. Yeah, I think you're referring to the article... Uh, between Gary North and Mish, where I uh, talked about that. And it was actually article of the day on uh, 24-hour gold. So it's got quite a bit of attention. So I think this will be a very very interesting topic for everybody to listen to. Well, let's just jump right in. My first question is this. Um, The mainstream press and the government like to define inflation as increase in consumer prices or the CPI. Well, I'd like to know, I'd like you to explain why that's a faulty measurement of inflation and explain, in, in fact, what is inflation? Well, first, there's, there, there are a couple different uh, schools of thought in economics. And the traditional uh, Austrian school of economics and the traditional definition of inflation would be an increase in the money supply. And th- this was actually the, the definition that was used for, for a long time. But then the, the Keynesian School of Economics and the Chicago School of Economics, they jumped into the fray, and they like to play uh, games with words. They like to, to change definitions sneakily because that keeps everybody in the dark. It keeps people from being able to uh, have, a, have a legitimate argument. Instead, they're just arguing semantics. And so they've attempted to change the definition of inflation to an increase in prices and deflation to a decrease in prices. But that's like saying that wet streets are rain. You know, an increase in prices is really just a symptom of or a consequence of inflation, just like uh, wet streets are a consequence of rain. Okay, that really makes sense. That makes it a lot clearer than a lot of the uh, the explanations out there. All right, now let's go yeah, into the yeah, second so- so to start, you know, to start, we have to, we have to define our words because words are our means to understanding. And if we, if we don't have a common definition with our words, then we're, we're going to just be screaming at each other, but it'll be like a foreign language. There will be no real understanding that takes place. So in our context of this discussion, uh, I think it's good that we, we uh, address the point using the traditional Austrian School of Economics definitions that inflation is an increase in the money supply and that deflation would be a decrease in the money supply 
And the consequences of these two measures are generally the increase in prices or the decrease in prices. And that way we can actually have uh, a real discussion about substantive issues instead of just arguing semantics. Because often uh, this argument of inflation versus deflation is, is just an argument of semantics, and that's not really substantive or even material, and it doesn't accomplish anything. So now that we've got these definitions in place, I think we can move on to a little bit of uh, more intellectual discussion and more substantive discussion instead of just wallowing around and uh, screaming at each other. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I agree. I think it's really important that you understand the exact meaning of the words because without that context, it's really impossible to have any kind of meaningful debate. I completely agree. You know, one of the things that I wanted to bring up, too, is the same media government that keeps telling us that inflation is an increase in consumer prices also wants to tell us that deflation, then, is a falling asset prices, which you've just explained is not the case. Why don't you explain a little bit about why it's important for people to really understand the, the difference in the, the definitions and what it means to us economically? Well, when we look at the liquidity structure of the world or when we look at the value of assets uh, in the world, we have, uh, with my book, The Great Credit Contraction, I've got this liquidity pyramid where I try to break up the liquidity structure into uh, different large components. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a very small pyramid and it's just a, a brief overview, uh, but I think it communicates the point. And the point is, is that we have different layers of what we could term the money supply, or I use terms like the illusion supply, because we've got money, which must be a tangible asset, and so that's like gold or silver. And then a little bit higher up in the pyramid, we've got illusions, such as Federal Reserve note dollars or uh, British pounds. And then we've got a lower order. Uh, illusions, which would be like the Argentine peso or uh, the Brazilian real. And as we keep moving up this liquidity pyramid, uh, it gets into less safe and more risky and less liquid assets. And so uh, what has happened uh, during the great credit expansion, or in other words, during the great inflation, uh, is that we were increasing the size of this liquidity pyramid. Uh, people would take out a loan to buy a house, for example. And so the loan would be turned into a mortgage-backed security, and then it would be used as collateral to uh, make another loan. And during all this time, the size of this liquidity pyramid was increasing in an outward and upward way. Well, eventually, uh, as always happens during a, a credit expansion, is the top is reached, and a credit contraction begins. And that's predictably what we've seen. And so what, happen what happens during the credit contraction is the system doesn't collapse, it just evaporates because the, because the capital moves down the liquidity pyramid into safer, more liquid assets. And so those assets which uh, are less safe and less liquid and the capital moves out of them, the, the value there just, disappears because it was never real capital anyways. And we saw this happen with auction rate securities. They were a $360 billion market, and they traded 
uh, like cash. People would put their money into those uh, kind of like a money market fund, you know, to earn an extra quarter of a percent interest. Well, for 25 plus years, an auction never failed with these uh, particular types of securities. But then one week in January, 98% of the auctions failed. And so now people had assets, which they thought were like cash, but nobody would buy. And these assets could be uh, bonds from the New Jersey Port Authority, or they could be student loans uh, that didn't even pay interest for like 10 years. I mean, a lot of people didn't even know what they owned because they thought that they were like cash instruments. Uh, but when the liquidity dried up, when people said, I want something safer and more liquid like a treasury bill, uh, that value of the auction rate security just evaporated. And in many cases, it lost 70, 80, 90% of its value because nobody was willing to offer a bid for it. And so what happened to this, the total liquidity pyramid is that 80% of the value, at least on the, on the books, of that auction rate security just evaporated. If it was a $100 million auction rate security, but the bid was only $20 million now, well, $80 million uh, just evaporated or perceived $80 million evaporated. And so during this great credit contraction, we're seeing huge amounts of this liquidity uh, pyramid evaporate as capital moves down the pyramid. So we've got this liquidity pyramid that represents about $2,000 trillion uh, in perceived asset values, uh, most of that being in derivatives, which are traded in a highly illiquid, uh, non-transparent market. Uh, I mean, sometimes you'll have derivatives with billions of dollars of uh, not notional value that are just traded over handwritten faxes, like back and forth to each other. <laughs> and now what we're seeing is that uh, some of these derivatives are failing. And when they fail, this notional amount becomes the nominal amount. Uh, and so derivatives are what have taken down long-term capital management, uh, Enron, uh, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, AIG, all of these were involved in the derivative business. And uh, for now, the, uh, the worldwide monetary system has been somewhat stabilized, but these derivatives are still uh, wrecking tremendous havoc. Uh, Warren Buffett calls them financial weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> and when we see one of them go off, it just completely vaporizes the firm, uh, like Lehman Brothers, for example, or Bear Stearns. So these derivatives are really uh, the, the capital or the fictitious capital that's in these derivatives is moving down the liquidity pyramid, uh, which is causing a lot of these to go off. And so it's just evaporating uh, the liquidity pyramid at a tremendous rate, which uh, is very deflationary because, remember, deflation is a decrease in the money supply, or I like to use the term in the illusion supply, and because these derivatives constitute part of the illusion supply, although they're at the very top of the pyramid, uh, they're, they're still there and they're, they're decreasing in size. So the pyramid overall is getting smaller instead of larger, like it has been for the last hundred and hundreds of years. 
Okay, you know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure we had time for was to touch a little bit on the article that you wrote with the the uh, inflation with Gary North or, or deflation with Mish. Um, why don't you sort of summarize the points that each one of them made and then talk a little bit about some of the points that you made in the article. Well, the, the main... Uh, so Gary North, he's, a, he's the inflationist, and he... He's talking about how the Federal Reserve is increasing M1 and M2 and, uh, and how that's very inflationary and how it's going to uh, perhaps result in hyperinflation. And Mish, uh, he's talking about how, oh, well, you can't just look at, at M1 or M2. you got to look at uh, the credit that's been uh, created that's now being destroyed, such as the mortgage-backed securities or uh these other credit instruments that constitute part of the liquidity pyramid because, uh, and really what the argument seems to be focusing on is is Gary North is looking at a lower level of the liquidity pyramid and Mish wants to broaden the discussion and look at uh, multiple levels of the liquidity pyramid. And so that, you know, really, really the issue uh, can be framed pretty, pretty simple, whether we should use uh, one layer or whether we should use two or three layers of the liquidity pyramid uh, in the discussion. But, of course, they've spilled uh, tons of ink and uh, tens, you know, thousands and thousands of words uh, debating this semantic argument here. And so what I come in and my take is, you know, we're definitely in deflation if we look at the liquidity pyramid as a whole. Uh, and... I think it's the great credit contraction. And so uh, Mish thinks that uh, the capital is going to come down into the Treasury bill, you know, into Treasury notes because they're risk-free. And Gary North is saying, oh, no, those are going to have their value uh, destroyed through hyperinflation. And I actually see hyperinflation or what we usually call hyperinflation as a currency event, uh, as something that happens uh, when capital moves to a lower level of the liquidity pyramid out of that uh, currency or that illusion, whereas Mish uh, takes the argument or the stance that uh, economic activity has to take place in order for there to be uh, hyperinflation. He, he says, oh, well, you know, the banks are sitting on all these reserves. They need to start loaning again before we're going to see hyperinflation. And... Uh, you know, loaning for houses and business loans and stuff like that. And I don't necessarily, that's what I don't agree with, because for the most part, I agree with Mish. <laughs> I don't really agree with Gary North on very much of this stuff, uh, mainly because he can't articulate his uh, points very clearly and concisely or make issue statements very, uh, very succinctly. And so uh, I don't find his writings all that persuasive. They're kind of rambling. Uh, but Mish... Mish is very good at, you know, being clear and concise, but I don't agree with him on this point that we have to have economic activity in order to see uh, the, this rise in prices, which is a consequence of inflation. And the reason I don't think we need to see that is because gold and silver, at all times and in all circumstances, they're money. They can never become worthless. And because gold is the most liquid of all the assets in the world, it's always worth something. It'll always buy something. Therefore, it is below the treasury bills in the liquidity pyramid. And so if we 
in order to see inflation, all that needs to happen is the banks, which are sitting on huge amounts of reserves, all they need to do is move out of those light cash instruments uh, of Federal Reserve note dollars and into gold because gold is cash. Gold is it goes in the cash portion of your balance sheet just like uh, silver does. And actually, just like uh, auction rate securities used to be treated as cash, like we were talking about earlier, well, they became light cash when the capital moved out of those into something lower in the pyramid. And so likewise, uh, my assertion is that when capital moves out of the Treasury bills into gold, the Treasury bills will become light cash and become worthless. And so they will hyperinflate, to use that word, uh, just like uh, auction rate securities hyperinflated, uh, where in one week they lost 80% of their value because of the decreased liquidity. And so that's my main assertion, is that uh, as capital moves down the pyramid, it, uh, it can result in this currency event known as hyperinflation, where we think of wheelbarrows full of money, uh, where that can happen without there being a lot of economic activity. In fact, uh, economic activity could be slowing, and this could be taking, and this could take place. And that's because of the change in psychology, uh, the change in attitude, viewing gold as money and as cash, and the treasury bills just as light cash, something that can become worthless, particularly when uh, the adjusted monetary base is increased. <laughs> You know, from $800 billion to $1.8 billion in a matter of months, uh, those people might be like, well, I don't want to make a loan or I don't want to buy real estate. I want to stay in cash. The type of cash or the form of cash I want to stay in is gold. So give me the physical metal in my hand. <laughs> and then they'll just sit on that until uh, the financial system works through uh, these credit excesses. Okay, let's sort of bring this all home then to the average listener who's wondering what's going to happen with his money and with, you know, with what he's got in his pocket to take care of his family over the course of the next couple of years. Well, yeah, I mean, for the average investor, uh, you want to be liquid. You know, you want to be able to buy food, for example. You want to have cash in your hand uh, because during deflation, cash is king. And as I said on uh, Business News Networks up in Canada, if cash is king, then gold is emperor. And the reason for that is most financial professionals consider those little green tickets or those little green coupons in your wallet uh, to be cash. But really, those are light cash. They can become absolutely worthless. But gold and silver, those are a form of cash that can never become worthless. And so if you have some of those in your pocket, You'll always be able to buy something, assume there's something available for sale, uh, which brings us to another point is that during inflation, uh, those are extremely hard times because people aren't able to make the mental calculations of value uh, to allocate capital in an efficient way. And so what happens is there, uh, inflation leads to shortages and shortages lead to rationing. And so the average listener, you know, you also want to have a little bit of food on hand, uh, you know, which is a great investment. Food's a great investment because uh, it protects you against inflation. It's an insurance policy that you can eat 
And so, you know, having at least three months of food on hand, and if you eat what you store and you store what you eat, then uh, it's not a real problem. And obviously, you can't eat gold. So it'd be nice to have a little bit of extra food on hand uh, for the average listener. And so I think that's a wise place to allocate capital. Um, But having the gold and silver, uh, that allows you to step in and buy when everybody else has had their wealth evaporated. And so, like in Weimar, Germany, for example, uh, entire uh, blocks in the city would sell for a single ounce of gold. And I don't necessarily think that we'll see that type of uh, decrease in prices, at least when priced in gold, uh, in the U.S., but we could definitely see houses uh, decline from their current average price of 240 ounces of gold to maybe 60 or 70 ounces of gold. Uh, or 500 to 1,000 ounces of silver. You know, that's not unreasonable uh, to see that happen because that's what happened last time uh, in 1980 uh, when we had that bout with inflation. And the, the Treasury note was actually able to be saved that time around, which I don't think we're going to see happen this time around because the, the U.S., uh, as The Onion said, they sold all the gold in Fort Knox to cash for gold. So... Uh, the U.S. doesn't have their their gold reserves this time around. Uh, they've leased it into the market to keep the price of uh, gold low. As Greenspan said, central banks stand ready to lease gold in increasing quantities should the price rise. Well, they're they're pretty much out of their physical bullion. And so, you know, if you've got the physical bullion in your hand, you've got the cash. And anyone who has a claim on that physical bullion, such as a, a COMEX a warehouse receipt or a, or a GLD ETF, you know, those those instruments are probably going to hyperinflate. They're going to become worthless. Uh, and, and if they settle them, they're probably going to get Treasury bills or Federal Reserve notes, and those are going to be worthless. <laughs> and so uh, people are going to want to have real assets, whether it's gold, silver, platinum, uh, wheat, corn. You're going to want to have these real assets because they have intrinsic value. All right. Well, I think we've just really come to the end of our time today. Is there anything else that you would like to make, any other point that you would like to make about inflation versus deflation before we have to cut it short? Um, just my book, The Great Credit Contraction, if people want to see this liquidity pyramid that we're talking about, uh, they can go to rundogold.com, and I have, I have the liquidity pyramid on every page. Uh, below all the posts, and so people can go and click on that, and it'll bring up the pyramid, and they can see all of it. And if they want a real, you know, if they want the intellectual or the academic uh, discussion, where I go point by point about what has created this uh, this environment and what the likely outcome is going to be, well, then you know, get a get a copy of the book uh, because it'll explain the environment that we're in. And that's really what I think people need to understand is they need to understand the basic economic laws that are at work, how they apply, and then what they can do uh, to protect themselves in this type of an environment, themselves and their capital and their family. Excellent. Well, my next question was going to be asking you to let people know where they can find out more what you have to say, but you just did a really good job of letting them know. So we just want to remind folks that Trace is with us about once a month and probably a little bit more as the future unfolds here. So tune in to, to CIC for our weekly radio programs to catch Trace uh, the next time. Okay, thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Trace. 
You've been listening to the RunToGold.com podcast, the premier source for applied monetary science on the web.